is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this episode, we speak to Tim De La Fosse following his XK120 restoration, winning the Club Cup at Salon Privé. And Tom Robinson has a panic before the next round of JEC Racing at Donington Park. JECpodcast.com Hello and welcome to the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you once again. Hope you're keeping well. Uh, Last weekend, over 100 of you joined us at Salon Privé, held in the stunning grounds of Blenheim Palace in Oxfordshire. And it was a beautiful, sunny autumnal day. And for those who put their Jaguars on display, and indeed for me and the others in the JEC team, it was a chance to return to almost near normality, just for a day and kind of forget about the troubles in the world that we've had this year. And it was certainly nice to see all those Jaguars in the flesh again, and albeit socially distanced, to see all of you out enjoying them as well. We had just about every model from manual XJ40, XJRs to E-types, F-types, XJSs, F-paces, XFs, and everything in between. It was mind-boggling as well, by the way, to see the COVID-19 safe infrastructure that had been put in place by the organisers of this event. If you want to hear more about how they went about obtaining the permissions to run it and making it possible and safe for everyone that attended, check back to episode 19 of this podcast where we interviewed David Bagley, who founded the show with his brother Andrew. And one of the highlights of the day, though, was seeing Tim De La Fosse scoop the club trophy for his stunning XK120 restoration, and we'll be talking to him on this podcast in just a moment's time. Also present was the Jaguar XK, the 5-litre V8 beast that you can win by purchasing your raffle tickets for just £2 via the website at jec.org.uk forward slash raffle. And I hope you've enjoyed hearing from our Haemophilia Society young ambassadors over the past four weeks on how the money you raise from buying those tickets will benefit their charity. So get your tickets now, jec.org.uk forward slash raffle. That Jaguar XK could be yours. Now, last weekend, the JEC Racing Championship arrived for the next round at Donington Park. And Tom Robinson was competing once again, of course. However, preparations for the weekend didn't quite go to plan in the very beginning. As Tom explains next, with the next instalment of the JEC Racing Diary. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Well, we're panicking slightly. It's uh, Friday afternoon and we've just gone to carry out the final loading of the car and all the spares into the van. And unfortunately, the XJR has decided that it doesn't want to start. Um, There's absolutely no power to any of the buttons on the car now um, with this vehicle we use a PDM which is a power distribution module so we don't actually have any fuses in the car it's all dealt with via this module and we've got power to it but there's no power coming out so we're pretty co- confident the issue is coming from there which is 
a little bit unusual as uh, it's been absolutely fine all week and we've tested it and tested it and tested it. So um, something that's really, I guess, completely out of our hands. So we're frantically panicking, trying to get this sorted. Um, obviously, the plan was to leave Saturday lunchtime to head up to Donington. Um, qualifying's not till Sunday, so we have got a little bit of time to resolve this, but obviously uh, not something we plan to do. So um, we're just now um, going to pin out all the wiring on the car and just make sure we haven't got wiring fault, which I'm confident we haven't, being the fact that it is a brand new wiring loom that we did over the winter um, and it is weather sealed, etc. So it's, it's built to a really high standard. So fingers crossed nothing's been damaged or something's been trapped somewhere, um, which can be our only conclusion at the moment. So we're just tinkering with that now to try and get this resolved. So panic over, we finally rectified the issue. Um, annoyingly though, we, we've only just managed to do that and it's Saturday afternoon. It was actually a software issue, believe it or not, which is, is just crazy for the PDM. Um, they released a new version of the software. Um, we uploaded that earlier on in the week, which is something we do regularly. And unfortunately, one of the bugs with the new software was that it loses its main live intermittently. So Luckily, Max ECU is a company we use. They're pretty um, ahead of the times and they're always continually updating. So they had a fix for this instantly, which we've now managed to calibrate to the car. Um, it was a little bit awkward, obviously, because we had to try and power it up manually on the bench, which you've just got to be a little bit carefully doing. So panic over. Um, it's all loaded on the trailer. I'm going to head up to Donington um, Sunday morning and the qualifier is at 11. So fingers crossed that goes to plan and we don't have any further issues. <laughs> Now I'm just carrying out the final checks of the car, we've just been called up to qualifying so I'm just literally going to check the tyre pressures one final time, talk the wheels and check all the levels under the bonnet. We obviously do this back at the workshops but it's literally just a double triple check and we don't want the slightest thing causes any issue especially in qualifying. We have to complete at least three to four laps I believe um, to actually qualify for the first race and that will obviously give us our grid position for race one so it's important to, to do our absolute best to get the quickest time possible to be up the front of the grid. Um, the challenge is obviously to try and beat um, Colin and James, who are normally pretty good here, unfortunately. Um, but with, uh, with how we've um, improved with the car this season, um, I'm really confident and I'm looking forward to it. So um, I'll let you know how we get on. We are qualifying again with the Open Series, so I'm going to try to get at the front as soon as possible. So we're going to get down to the assembly area as early as possible, so we've got a good chance to try and get a lap in before it gets too busy. Some of the previous circuits we've been at this year, with all of the cars on the grid, I think there's 40 45 cars so it can be quite busy out there and they vary in speed hugely um, there's cars that are similar to us and there is full-blown um, purpose-built race cars such as Ginettas etc so sometimes we might have an edge on straight line speed but cornering speed obviously they have a huge benefit and we're all on different tires so it means you can get held up in certain parts of the circuit where and other parts they're a lot quicker and you're sometimes holding them up so you've just got to kind of predict where you can get a lap in and get the quickest lap in as soon as you can really so that's the plan and I'll let you know how we get on now that was pretty busy um, I must admit I actually struggled to get a clear lap here at Donington um, it was really really busy out there so um, I must admit I tried to go out quickly to start um, and that just meant that I ended up catching the back end of the people coming out for qualifying so by the time I'd come around to do a lap I was already on the back of the next group coming out so that didn't prove too much of a 
a benefit to me going out early so um, we did struggle to get a lap in but I'm, I'm fairly pleased because looking at the the lap times um, we were doing a 121 um, which isn't the quickest we've done here um, we we're hoping to get into the low 120s um, so we're about a second and a half off the pace where we're expected but having said that that has put us third overall um, so I'm pretty happy with that um, obviously being in the top three that was always the target so we've got a good shot in the race to to improve on that um, and we've got James in front of us and Colin to be fair to him looks like he got a cracking lap and he's put it on pole so um, it's going to be great um, the race isn't till this afternoon um, it's going to be fairly pain free at the moment the car was absolutely brilliant um, the only thing I'm going to do is actually stiffen um, the damper settings on the rear I just felt that um, it was a little bit soft coming out of the chicane onto the straight but other than that car felt absolutely great um, just just too busy to, to try and get a clear lap engine temps seemed good which was obviously one of our concerns um, so yeah great result really and uh, we'll see what we can do in the race but we've got we've got a couple of places to see if we can improve We've finally just been called for race one, so I'm just heading down to the assembly area now in the car. Um, the assembly area is on the old Melbourne loop of the circuit, so this time um, with the Open Series, we're going off second. So at some of the previous events, uh, the Jags have started first, and then the Open Series have started behind us. So I've not started like this, actually, so it'll be interesting to see. So um, from what I understand, the instructions we've had is the... We'll follow the open series out. We'll do our, our warm up lap as normal um, under green flags. We'll come up to the start finish straight. Um, the open series will be gridded in front of us. They will go from the lights and we'll be gridded in our grid positions behind that and we'll go under the national flag. So I'm starting third overall, which looks like I'm actually in the middle of the track and I've got uh, James to the, to the left of me and Colin to the right, I believe. So um, yeah, I've got a good chance to, if I can hopefully get a good start to try and uh, drag them on the straight. The XJR um, does have good pace in a straight line. So I'm hoping that I can get the better of them before the first corner, but obviously on cold tires, we normally try to get a lap in just to get some heat in there first before we can do anything to crazy so fingers crossed we get away um, and it's all to play for oh well I've just finished race one and I'm actually over the moon we managed to win um, first winner this season um, in the dry and I'm just blown away to be honest um, we had a bit of luck on our side to be fair um, poor old Colin um, unfortunately had some car trouble so he did have to retire so we got given a place basically um, which I'm not going to turn down um, but we unfortunately I had an absolute terrible start um, and I just just wheel span I kind of mispredicted the the start flag um, obviously the first time I've started like this and I just completely missed, missed, missed the actual start and uh, the flag dropped and I sort of hesitated and, and ended up wheel spinning so I dropped back believe it or not to I think I counted at least seven or eight um, which wasn't what I was planning to do so I spent most of the race battling um, to get back up to um, the top three uh, within about four or five laps I'd managed to get back up to third um, and I could see James and Colin were quite a long way ahead of me at first I wasn't sure if I was able to to catch them I thought I'd, I'd miss the opportunity um, but lap by lap I could see that consecutively we were getting into the 120s which is where we wanted to be in qualifying and I could just gradually see that I was reeling James in each lap each lap um, and I had about four to five laps to do that in um, and I could see that we were gaining and gaining so um, in the end uh, we were I think we were within um, two to three seconds of James and I had enough time to do that 
Colin had retired. Um, I think he was well clear of James in the race as well, so I, I'm, I'm sure he's absolutely gutted. Um, and, and basically, James locked up coming in onto the chicane under braking, and I managed to overtake him um, with two laps to spare. So oh, I'm absolutely over the moon, but I think uh, Lady Luck was on our side today and uh, great result. So uh, for race two, um, the grid is um, reversed, so there'll be a name or a number, sorry, pulled out the hat. And we'll see where we end up shortly. Um, hopefully, we're still within the top three, so we've got a good chance to to try and repeat this for race two. Just literally had the number pulled out the hat, and it looks like I've ended up back in fifth for race two start, which it is what it is. Um, it, it makes a great race anyway, so I'm not too concerned. It's completely out of our hands. I've got James to the right of me. Um, unfortunately, Colin's car is terminal, so he won't be in race two, which is a real shame. Um, but it obviously gives us a, a great opportunity to to try and make the most of this. Um, Colin's in a different class to me. He's in class C and we're in D, so my direct competitor really is James. We're pretty close on points at the moment as well, so it could kind of go either way, and I'm not entirely sure if Castle Coombe, which is our last round, is actually going to be a championship round. So um, if I can get the better of him today, it'll give me a good chance to, to get ahead of him for the point. So um, fingers crossed I can actually get a good start and get away. Now that was an interesting race. I've just literally come in. We ended up finishing um, second overall, which um, I'm absolutely over the moon about, but a little bit gutted at the same time because it was very, very close um, battling with James. And uh, I think we had a, a bit of an edge on him pace-wise um, today, definitely. Um, I felt that I could pretty much match him in most places and I tried numerous times to, to get past him, but I, I just couldn't, couldn't get it together. Um, it was a bit of a strange race. We spent quite a long time behind the safety car um, which was a little bit frustrating. Um, we got a fairly good start and managed to get away. Um, and within a sort of, I think it was about three laps, me and James had managed to move up to um, first and second. I did get in front of him quite early on, um, but that was for second place. And I had Guy in front of me. And uh, James got a really, really good corner exit coming onto the main straight and just managed to, to get back in front of me and Guy at the same time, which was a great move from him. I was then stuck um, behind Guy in the XJS V12, and which I managed to get back past him coming down through Crane of Curves, which was which was great. I had a really good run on him through there, um, and then I spent the rest of the race trying to to get back past James, which I just couldn't quite do. And then unfortunately, the the race was was cut short. So um, it's the classic. I just needed one more lap. Um, I'm sure it was there somewhere the overtake, but I just couldn't quite get it together. But all in all, I'm still absolutely over the moon with that result. Um, couldn't have asked for anything more, really. A first and a second um, at Donington, and and the car's just been absolutely brilliant. Um, it's it's the best it's ever been, to be brutally honest with you. Um, which is it's just great. Which is what we're always trying to do to push forward and find another edge. And I think we're finally on the right track. So. Um, great 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 result and uh, we ended up with um, being fastest saloon and first saloon on both days um, they run the trophy slightly different for the saloon against the GT cars so we managed that um, I also got driver of the day which I'm just absolutely over the moon with and we managed the fastest lap in, in race 2 as well so we're going to pick up some points so all in all, Donington was was an absolute um, brilliant result, and uh, yeah, I just can't wait to be honest to get the car back out of the next round. Um, we'll touch base next week with our preparation plans for Castle Coombe, but um, there was very little um, points really with the car in this in this race meet. Obviously, we'll find out when we get it back on the ramps whether I've damaged anything or there's anything that we're uh, not too happy about, um, and we'll touch base next week. <laughs>
You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk. Well, on this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we talked to a new star of the Jaguar scene. Of course, last weekend was Salon Privé at Blenheim Palace and the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. We're very honoured to have one of the big club displays uh, within the show. And it was fantastic to see over 100 Jaguars all gathered together in the grounds of Blenheim Palace, a sort of precursor, if you will, to our fantastic Summer Jaguar Festival taking place over there in May 2021. But I had the great privilege, actually, of being asked to judge the club category in the Salon Privé Club Concours on Saturday. And what we had to do was to go through all of the wonderful Jaguars assembled and pick out two cars that stood out amongst the crowd and that had an interesting story. And the winner we put forward joins me now on the podcast. Welcome to the JC Podcast, Tim. Good evening, Wayne. Hi. Let's start by going right back to the very beginning Let's talk about your passion for Jaguar and how you ended up with an XK120 to restore. Well, I remember I was I was 14 years old. Uh, a very good friend of mine's dad owned a garage, used to pull cars off the motorway. And I used to spend my weekends up there and he had all these motorsport magazines. And I wasn't particularly into cars, but I remember opening one of them uh, one Saturday and seeing a picture of an XK120, and I just fell in love with it. I loved it. And from the age of 14, every time I saw a 120 on the cover of a magazine in the newsagents, I would buy it. Uh, I just loved them. Never thought I'd own one. They're well beyond my means. But later in life, when uh, kids had left home, uh, uh, university was finished with, and we finally had actually had a little bit of money saved. I remember saying to my wife whilst I was looking at one of these magazines, look, there's a 120 here. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's in a bit of a rough state. But actually, if I put together all our savings, uh, you know, cash in a few policies, I could probably afford to buy this. And she said to me, bless her, she said, uh, well, why don't you then? So I did. Uh, and it was a, a bit of a rough 120. It, it, it looked okay. It was what somebody called a 20-yard car. It looked great from 20 yards. But if you got close, it was the paint was old. It was a restoration done sort of 20 or 30 years previously. Uh, the engine w- was uh, thrown a valve. The wiring wasn't what it could be. It needed some TLC, but the point was I could afford it. Uh, so I bought it. And uh, I spent, this was in 2006, and I spent, well, the next 10 years or so gradually doing things to it, improving it and improving it. But there came a point where I scraped the door all the way down the wall of the garage and I had the door painted but it was red and uh, red's a very difficult colour to match and uh, I, for the next year I had this door that looked different to the rest of the car and I couldn't bear it. I knew I was going to rebuild it properly at some time so I bit the bullet about four years ago and stripped it down to a chassis uh, and from then on I spent the next four years every spare moment uh, I was working uh, anyway, but every spare moment I had, I was on this car, stripping it down, getting it ready, and rebuilding it. Now, I I didn't rebuild the body. Uh, I had that done by experts. I didn't do the paintwork, and I didn't do the trim, but I did everything else and rebu- rebuilt all the mechanics. And I was determined that uh, I was going to not just use repro parts everywhere. Um, I was going to search out original parts where necessary and rebuild them, which is what I did. Was this the first restoration you'd ever done, Tim? No, uh, we've got, um, we've got a, a Morris Minor, a soft top, that we're only the second owners of. 
Uh, we bought, we've had it for nearly 40 years now. Uh, it was our only car when we had three babies, uh, which is interesting because we lived in Scotland. Uh, and I restored that some years ago. Once again, I, I didn't do the metal work or the paint, but I did everything else. Um, so I got some experience of it. And of course, I'm of an age where uh, when, we were, when I was younger, uh, my generation, when you bought a car, it was up to you to maintain it and patch it and you know rebuild it. It was just part of the game. So I was used to messing around with cars out of necessity more than anything. Um, but this 120, I, I was looking forward to actually taking it back to the state it would have come in from the factory. So everything's gone back to factory spec. The, the colors, the trim, everything to factory spec. Uh, I searched out the, the right this, that, and the other to make it as it would have been when it came out of the factory in uh, October 1950. Amazing. And how easy has that been to find those original parts? Because, yeah, there are a lot of repros around, and, and actually the XK120 range, very well serviced. How hard was the search to find those original parts? Well, I'd been using a lot of repro parts as I'd done this sort of rolling restoration over the previous 10 years. And what I found about repro parts is, yes, we're well served, but a lot of them are not very good. Uh, they don't fit well. They don't always look right. You've got to settle them quite often to get them uh, correct. And if you can get the original part, it's just it's so much better. And I like the fact that the car is old. So having original old bits in it just makes the car that much more worthwhile to me. Uh, how difficult was it? It's all about networking, really, knowing who to ask, where to go. Somebody says, well, I know you're after this, that, or the other. I think there's one in a barn in Norfolk or whatever. Uh, and then searching it out that way. And then answering adverts, people advertise bits and bobs. For instance, the, the XK engine has studs all, all the way around the cam cover, but the early engines didn't have studs around the front of the cam covers. And, and uh, somebody put a head on my car uh, that had the studs at the front, so I had to find a head that didn't have the studs, and I had to find the cam covers that didn't have the studs. And I found the head uh, in, in a sort of um, mess down in a barn in um, on the south coast in Sussex. And then I found the cam covers, again, uh, much corroded in a barn in Norfolk. Uh, when I put the cam covers on, they rocked by about two millimeter, had a two millimeter gap at the front of them, so I had to have those a bead of aluminium put all the way around underneath the cam covers and then skimmed to make them flat. And, and that's the story. They're all the repro parts I got needed rebuilding, refettling. But the point is they were original. They're proper bits that would have been with the car in 1950. Absolutely. And I suppose looking back on keeping your Morris Minor going, in the old days you'd have actually gone along to auto jumbles and found people in the club that would have parts for you. But uh, now in slightly more modern times, the XK120 restoration, how has the internet and eBay and things like that changed how you source parts? Did they come into play or was it still very much the old network, so to speak? Do you know, I didn't use eBay and I didn't use uh, the internet at all. Um, I used contacts that I'd made at various meeting, Jaguar XK meetings in the past. And con I live in Coventry. But this is Jaguar Central. And uh, a lot of the people that make or fettle Jaguar parts are around here and Nuneaton. Uh, I think a lot of the old boys who used to work in the factories set up their own businesses in sheds. And you can get stuff made and fettled around here. Uh, for instance, one of the repro bits I did have done the uh, very early 120s, the beautiful radiator uh, grill at the front has a, a set of veins in the front of it. And the original 120s had a raised bump on those veins. 
Now, as the pressing went on and on during the course of the 120s lifetime, those bumps disappeared from the front of these veins. But I had a guy, an old guy in Nuneaton, who's not with us anymore, uh, remake the veins with that little bump in the front and then had the whole grill remade and re-chromed using the original grill surround but having these other veins uh, put in as they would have been with this little bump on the top of them. And actually, nobody can see that little bump but me. I know they're there. And you can get it done in this area because there are so many chaps in sheds that used to work for Jaguar doing stuff. And so, yes, it was word of mouth. It's the old-fashioned word of mouth. Who do you know that does this, that, or the other? Who do you know that's got a uh, spare... And there's one bloke in Norfolk. Um, he actually advertised in a magazine that he got some engine bits. Now, I went to this barn in Norfolk with a trailer to see if I could get uh, a head. And he opened the door to this barn. There were over 40 XK engines sitting there. Um... Uh, all, often, they, most of them were in a parlour state, but the point is it was all there. All, all the metal was there, and 40-odd uh, engines in a shed. Incredible. Wow, that is incredible. I think anyone who owns an XK120 will be ringing you up to find out where that shed is <laughs> if they don't already know. And it does just go to prove that even in the modern day with so many access points to parts and information online and we're always getting told that social media and ebay and things like that are the way to go in actual fact when it comes to really good restorations and finding those period parts you just can't beat networking within a club like the jec can you you're right and in fact just today i've been down to uh, shaftesbury uh, it's about a three and a half hour drive for me with uh, an old friend of mine who who has many, many XK parts in his barn because he'd found an old ENV axle, which my car would have had, um, that a chap wanted to sell. And I know that my ENV axle, although I had it rebuilt as part of uh, my rebuild process, the crown and pinion were very, very worn and they, they whine a lot. And I've been looking for an ENV axle for a while. Couldn't find one during the rebuild, but I've just found one and I got it back today. Um, and this friend of mine also got, I've got an XK150 as well, but the overdrive plinth, the, the, the plinth that the overdrive switch sits on is not the correct one. And this friend of mine brought with him, he got it in his barn, an overdrive plinth from an XK150. I mean, where would you find one of those? Let's put the XK120 into context then. It was launched as an open two-seater in 1948. So the Second World War had just finished, really. It was three years ago, and the London Motor Show had kicked off in 1948 with a new and quite amazing attraction, and that was the new Jaguar XK, designed by Jaguar's chief engineer, William Haynes. And this display car was a prototype. They had absolutely no intention of putting this car into production at all. Really what it was was a test bed and a showcase for this new XK engine. Such was the amazing reception that this car had at the London Motor Show in 1948. They were forced to put it into production. The first 242-odd cars from 1948 were actually wooden-framed uh, with aluminium panels, but as production grew and they needed to satisfy an ever more uh, growing demand for the car, uh, the uh, the cars went to an all-steel construction from 1950 onwards. So, Tim, I'm guessing yours is one of the all-steel cars. Um, well, all-steel's a bit of a misnomer. The steel cars still had an aluminium uh, bonnet, an aluminium boot, aluminium uh, doors, um, but they didn't have the wooden frame, you're right, that the early cars had. So, yes, mine's one of the first steel ones. In fact, it's the 359th right-hand drive steel one, and there were only 612 right-hand drive steel roasters that stayed in Britain. So, yes, it's an early 
It's within the first six months of the uh, the build of the uh, steel cars. Well, of course, it quickly captured the imagination of the uh, the good and the great. Clark Gable had one very famously, and then in 1949, the Jaguar XK120 made real history by breaking a land speed record on the famous Jebeka Highway in Belgium, which was a highway built by uh, Hitler, actually, to transfer all of the uh, armaments from Germany for an invasion of England uh, to the coast at Ostend. Thankfully, that didn't happen, but what we were left with was a fantastic highway on which to do speed records, and the XK120 being one of the very first uh, to start a whole long line of speed records that would happen at Jebeka. Of course, Sunbeam would follow them, uh, also uh, Healy, and of course Triumph with the TR2. And it was a start of a new design era in sports cars, really, as the 1950s dawned. I think everyone looked at the XK120 and tried to emulate it. In particular, you look at the Triumph TR2 launched in 1953, and it is just like a little mini XK120. But it's not an easy body, I can imagine, to restore, Tim. So talk us through the process of... Where do you start restoring the body on an XK120? I mean, there's curves upon curves upon curves, aren't there? Well, yes, there are. And there's lots of compound curves where body panels curve in, in two directions, uh, like the front wings. Um, some, of the, some of the body parts, are the, the rear wings, for instance, just come off, and my rear wings were fine. Uh, so that, that, they, they just came off. Uh, the, the, the body is actually in three parts. The front of the body, the whole thing bolts to um, a, a chassis, and the front of the car comes off in one piece. The back of the car comes off in one piece, and the sills, uh, which normally join two parts of the car together and are structural, are just decorative on the 120. You could bolt a, a rear of a 120 onto the chassis and the front, not have the sills on it. It would be as structurally sound as, as if you didn't have the sills on at all. The sills really just cover up the um, chassis in the middle. Um, so it's the two halves of the body. Now, I, my body came off. Um, the, the two halves were taken apart from the sills, and the whole lot was blasted with media to take it back down to metal. Now, you've got to be careful with the aluminium bonnet and boot and doors. You can't just pound it with uh, media. You can do damage. So the, those bits were the paint was taken off with uh, paint remover rather than media. Um, but having got the body down into its two component parts, and then the two sills. Uh, the chassis is checked for straightness, and uh, I had a couple of bits of metal put into the chassis where it's weak, especially around the front mounting for the front suspension. But once the chassis was solid and whole and had been um, etch-primed, that was used as a jig on which to rebuild the body. Now, the body had been rebuilt at various times by various people over the previous 70 years, uh, and it it wasn't straight in places. It wasn't straight at all. Uh, I know one of the wings was six millimeters ahead of the other front wing. Uh, and so when it was put back onto the chassis, all that had to be adjusted and a bit had to be cut out of one wing or six millimeters and the wing pushed back to make it all line up properly. Uh, and then all sorts of measurements done and, and the body gradually built up. Some new metal had to go in. Uh, the sides of the front wings were just uh, a mass of patches that had been uh, welded together and then covered in filler. Um, so the sides of the front wing had to go. The compound curves were all kept, but the slab sides uh, had new metal put in them. Um, and then the doors had to be dressed properly and the whole lot. The, the key to a 120 is that when you look down the side, it sh all 
the front wings, back wings, and the doors of the middle should be absolutely flat and vertical. In fact, the the um, the maxim was that when it was painted, we should be able to put a broom on the wall by the side of the workshop and walk down the side of the car, and the reflection of that broom should not bend at all as we walked it down the panel. Uh, and that's where we got to. The sides are perfect. Uh, but it was a lot of work. Not my work, I hasten to add. Uh, it was done by James Sidwell, who was one of the rebuilders of NUB120, a very famous uh, 120 belonging to Jaguar that was raced and rallied back in the day. And uh, he was a foreman of the company that rebuilt it for Jaguar uh, some years ago. So he rebuilt the body. Uh, I, I took lots of photographs and watched, but I can't claim any kudos for that at all. Mm. He did that. Well, interesting you mentioned some weakness in the chassis there, because, of course, although it had semi-elliptic leaf springs at the rear, like so many cars of that period, they have a kind of torsion bar arrangement. That, so it's very important to make sure all of those mounting points are very strong, isn't it? Yeah, the mounting for the suspension at the front is weak and it's several layers of metal in the chassis and in and, and the inside part of the chassis on mine had rotted but you can't see it um so that would have to be cut out and new metal put in incidentally that 1948 motor show you were talking about <coughs> was significant not only for the 120 but the morris minor appeared there it also had torsion bar suspension and the land rover appeared for the first time as well at that, that motor show and i think they were uh, the torsion bar suspension if i'm right was a copy of Citroen. Citroen had it in the Traction Avant and uh, it was deemed successful and copied by Jaguar and Morris and other people. Mm. Amazing engine as I mentioned there you know and what a lifespan it had from the XK120 onwards it must have been a real pleasure to take it apart and do it the the dignity of a good restoration. Well I, I did do the engine and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, the best I've done before was Morris Minor engines but I've got uh, there's a couple of companies locally to me who specialise in Jaguar engines, and they helped me no end. I didn't do the head, I did the main engine. And they gave me a lot of advice and a lot of help, uh, but I was able to rebuild the engine myself, which was great to get my hands on it. Uh, the head was built uh, separately because it's a bit more intricate uh, by a, a local chap, Rob Beer, uh, who's quite well known in the Jaguar world, and he, he, he built this uh, beautiful head up. And you're right, the engine looks stunning. I'm, I'm a pilot by trade, and to me it looks like... Um, an aircraft engine, especially with the old 120s, they had a big cast aluminium fan on the front, looked like a propeller, and it looked very much like a miniature Merlin engine, I think, a beautiful engine. Tell us about some of the biggest challenges that you've met with this restoration, some some of the points along that journey where if someone was coming to you now and said, right, I'm going to embark upon an XK120 restoration, you would say, right, well, watch out for, what do we need to watch out for, Tim? No matter how much you do yourself, and I did the, the bulk of it um, myself with the exception of metalwork, paintwork, and trim. No matter how much you do yourself, everything is costly. Everything for a 120 uh, costs a lot of money. And I, I don't know whether it's a feature of the car or the fact that the parts are rare or, or what. But, I mean, the, the budget I set off with, was I quickly found, was unrealistic. And l- luckily... I have a very forgiving wife who I've decided to keep because she just let me throw some money at it to, to get things sorted out. So the budget is one thing. <clears throat> the, um, there's a lot of information on the 120. A lot of books have been written, and it's easy, to, um, it's easy to get information, and there's a lot of specialists around. Um, but you've got to do your homework. I think, actually, the 120 is quite a simple car to restore. Everything's big and mechanical. There's nothing complicated about it. It's just 
doing the research, locating the right bits, uh, and then just just putting in the work. And as I say, I think it's a lot easier if you can get original parts. Some of the repro parts really um, complicate issues because they just don't fit very well. As you've gone through the restoration, obviously you've uncovered extra bits about the car, no doubt of its own history uh, since the early 1950s. So what do you know about the car and its life before you and, and some of the people that have owned it? Well, it was um, sold to a foundry director, uh, I can't remember the name of the foundry off the top of my head, but it's a foundry in uh, Yorkshire that um, made Jaguar parts. Now, they had two cars. They had my car, which is NWA499. They also had NWA500. Now, in 1950, to get hold of a 150 was nigh on impossible unless you had contacts. And I've I, I, been led to believe that the foundry was one of the foundries making parts for Jaguar, and that's how the two directors got their hands on two cars. <clears throat> now, it was... Uh, it went through various owners, and I've got the old uh, Buff logbook. And I did contact one elderly gentleman who had it when he was uh, in his early 20s. And he said, oh, yes, I remember it well. It was painted maroon and cream. He said, it went really well, he said, uh, but I sold it for £60 in 1961. Um, and it went off to uh, um, a chap who, again, I can't remember his name, but in his day he was a, a racing driver of some note. We're not talking Formula One. But nevertheless, he was a, a professional racing driver, and uh, it was believed it was... Well, he, he cut out the back of the tonneau and put in a roll bar because it was still cut out when uh, the previous owner had it. Um, I can't find any photographs anywhere of him racing or rallying it, and I've contacted his sons, who still run the racing business up in Yorkshire. Uh, they have nothing either, but it, it was apparently race and rally back in the 60s. It then disappeared for a while, but it turned up in um, <clears throat> the late 70s as a wreck behind a cafe in Yorkshire. And when I say a wreck, it was a lump of rust covered by tarpaulin and it had fallen in on itself. And the gentleman that bought it, uh, the previous owner to me, uh, he was an inveterate restorer of cars. And in a single car garage, he waved his magic wand and, and really turned out a lovely-looking car. But back in the late 70s, early 80s, there wasn't the support for old Jaguars that there is now and you know he did the best he can with what he had but there was still quite a lot that could be done with it and he painted it red a popular color and it looked great but when I got it some uh, 25 30 years later it, it was tired um, and it really needed uh, some TLC and he was ready to move on to other things so he sold it to me I got it for a quite a moderate price a modest price for a 120 because it did need the work and uh as i say I, since then it's been a labor of love my, my mistress my wife calls it <laughs> well it's very important to have an understanding wife when you have projects that take four odd years to get through and uh, and then of course once you finish them you have to go and win all these trophies like you did last weekend uh, with it as well so there's a whole life that goes and follows the restoration isn't there <laughs> Well, I, the, the trophy was unexpected, but I, I was really glad to have it, and I was chuffed to bits with it. Um, in fact, there's a photo which I'm not going to send to you uh, of the night I got back from that, uh, uh, that, that last Saturday at the Salon Privé. I've got a photo, a selfie, of myself and my wife in bed with a cup between us tucked up under the quilt there. <laughs> I'm sure she was really pleased to be joined in bed with a big cup. <laughs> she just tutted and raised her eyebrows. I think she's used to it. Well, you did tell me, actually, uh, as I was judging the car on the day, uh, a little bit about how you've incorporated some of your own aerospace engineering history into the build of this car. Tell us more. 
I fly for a living, or at least I did. I retired last month um, from British Airways. I latterly flew Boeing 777s, but I've flown nine different types in British Airways. Um, actually, the first one I flew was uh, an HS748, which is a turboprop aircraft in the Highlands and Islands of Scotland. And they had that aircraft had the Dunlop Maxorette brakes, which went on to be developed into the car, the brakes that went on to the um, XK150 and the C-Type 1, have you? I also flew for a period in the 90s the 747 uh, Jumbo, uh, the Boeing 747, and recently British Airways scrapped one of those Jumbos, and as a gesture, uh, those pilots who'd flown the Jumbo, they took the skin of the fuselage of this particular Jumbo, which is Golf, Bravo, November, Lima, Julia, they took um, a chunk of the skin of this aircraft, uh, the bit that was painted white, and they turned it into a set of um, key rings, if you like, key ring tags for those pilots. And they stamped it with a picture of the Jumbo on and saying, uh, this is a limited edition certified part of Jumbo Jet uh, GBNLJ. And so I got this key ring tag, um, a couple of inches by a couple of inches, uh, made of aluminium, white on the outside, the green primer on the inside that the aeroplane had. And uh, underneath, at the same time, I was uh, just finishing off, the body was being finished on the car, and the front wings where they meet the chassis have a gap where water can get up into the bulkhead. Uh, it's designed like that, but water does get into the bulkhead and can cause uh, rot. So I decided I was going to make some closing panels here just to close that off. So I used some aluminium, but I let in this piece of Boeing 747 uh, GBNLJ into the panel. So, and on the reverse of the panel, I've written, this, this aircraft was flown by Captain Tim Dolefoss from Johannesburg to Durban on this date in 1996. So that the next owner of the car in 40 years, when he decides to rebuild it again, and he takes it apart, we'll, we'll find this little note to him. Uh, telling him where this piece of jumbo jet came from. So there's a piece of Boeing 747 in the car. Brilliant. That's fantastic. And hopefully one day someone will discover that and know the story behind it now that you've told everyone. That's great. Really good. It's nice. And it's nice to put your own sort of stamp on these cars, isn't it, as you restore them? And it is the opportunity to just inject a bit of your own history and your own personality into the car. So what have you done to the car that it might not have had when it was new in the 1950s? Have you, have you modified anything in any way or, or customised it for yourself? Well, as I say, I've gone to quite a lot of lengths to make sure that the stuff I put on is original stuff rather than repro stuff wherever I can. And I was very keen on originality, but um, I drive the car. And uh, in the last couple of months, I've done 1,500 miles in it. I, I do drive it. As soon as um, circumstances allow and we've got rid of this pestilence, then we will be taking it back into France, where we've been with it before. We will be taking it through Europe. And my wife's Canadian. We will be taking it across the ocean and driving it across Canada. So the car's going to be driven. So it's got to be safe. So our, there are a number of things which uh, I've done to upgrade it, invisibly where I can. For instance, inside the C45 Dynamo case, I've had built an alternator. So the uh, the car has an alternator rather than a dynamo, which means the lights are, are bright and I'm not going to run out of electric. Uh, you can't tell it's been done, but with that, you have to upgrade the loom. Now, the loom is a cloth-covered loom, which I had made specially, and incorporated in that loom are the, are the larger wires that will take 50 amps rather than the sort of 35 that it was designed for. Um, so, so there's that. Uh, the ammeter had to be rebuilt to take the 
extra current that the uh, that the alternator can throw out. Uh, again, you can't tell; it's all behind the ammeter. Uh, I have put, uh, and people may may suck in their breath at this. I put disc brakes on the front end. I put a servo, uh, which is fairly invisibly hidden away, uh, because I do want to stop the brakes. The brakes on the 120, not bad for the day, but they were always criticised for fading. And in modern traffic, I just don't want that, so I've put disc brakes on the front. I've still got the original brakes. The next owner can have them. It'll be after I'm dead. Uh, but it's got discs on the front. And then uh, the demands of Mrs. Delafosse and to keep her happy, and as you say, it is important to keep the family CEO happy, uh, I've put seatbelts in. Now, the seatbelts clip on to mountings, and they can be unclipped and taken off. But when we're touring, traveling, and uh, my wife's with me, we, we have the seatbelts in. But they're period, they're bright acts, they're period, they go with the car, they look fine. And uh, apart from that, no, I've not done anything else. Inside the engine, the cams and the valves and what have you are uh, same as a C-type engine. But again, you wouldn't know it by looking at it. Well, this is the opportunity to do it when you're rebuilding a car and to rebuild it in a way that, as you say, balances originality with what you want to do with the car and, and brilliant to hear that you're going to be using it and making some life experiences and, and great memories with the car um, from now on. And uh, yeah, interesting point you raise about the brakes there. Of course, Jaguar, one of the few uh, cars to actually come out of the factory with Alfin brake drums on them because they were aware of uh, brake fade. They used to get very hot and Alfin brake drums are famous for being uh, these big drums with fins sticking out the side of them, of course, and they were available for the car in period to help alleviate that. But ultimately, the XK120 led to the XK120C, which was, of course, responsible for Jaguar's first win at Le Mans, which is one of the things we'll be celebrating at the Summer Jaguar Festival next May at Blenheim Palace 2021. Tim, I hope you'll be joining us for the Summer Jaguar Festival as well and getting involved with more events with the club. Well, as I say, I've just retired, and whereas I had to look carefully at a diary and miss quite a few events, I shall be at all of them next year. Brilliant. Well, we can't wait to see the car there. Now that you're famous, you know, it wouldn't be a show without you, <laughs> to be honest, Tim. So, uh, but no, it was great to see it on the show field at Salon Privé. Great to hear your story of how you've restored this car and, and the effort and the passion that you've put into XK120. It really shone out on the show field at Salon Privé. Oh, well, thank you. It, it, it kind of made it all worth it that people were appreciating it. It, uh, it was very gratifying. Well, we appreciate it, and we also appreciate you coming on to the podcast to tell us all about it. So, Tim De La Foss, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.